Radio Mano Papachango. I just recorded this entire intro, um, but it wasn't recording, and I didn't notice because, as I said, I'm an idiot. Uh, and then I sneezed about 15 times in a row. So I am going to try to make this quick and dirty, A, because I've already done the whole thing, and I hate repeating myself, and B, because I'm likely to keep sneezing, which is not good for you, not good for your speakers. And um, I've—I don't know—I'm a—I'm—I think I'm allergic to Colorado. Maybe I'm in Gunnison, uh, sitting in the van in a parking lot. As soon as I finish this, I'm going to go into a bike shop slash cafe that purportedly has good Wi-Fi and try to upload this. Um, I, I really would rather <clears throat> wait a couple of days, but I'm running behind, and I want to—you know—try to stick to my podcasting schedule. I don't do push-ups, I don't do sit-ups, I don't drink enough water, I don't get to bed at the same time every night, but God damn it, I want to get this podcast out regularly, because I care, I really do care. This episode is with Kevin Russell, who is a dude I met in Whitefish, Montana, um, early July. I know that because he said, hey, if you don't have plans for the fourth come on over to my place in whitefish i've got a view of the lake and i thought well you know what campgrounds are going to be totally packed up and this guy seems like a nice dude he listens to my podcast why not let's go do it so we did and we ended up uh getting to know a really special dude and uh and his girlfriend tori and his beautiful little girl two-year-old daughter lovely just the whole whole situation we ended up spending i don't know three four days with him and um and at this point i consider kevin a good friend and i certainly hope he feels the same this is the best thing about this podcasting van life nexus that that i'm living in right now thanks to you those of you who support the podcast uh make this possible for me and it's just so wonderful uh we met him because he recognized the van and uh, we were coming out of a cafe and he came over to say hello and um that's the way it works and it's happened dozens of times on this trip where just a casual hey you're chris how you doing let's have a beer or people write and say hey you know, go check out this campsite or drop in and see my brother or meet my parents or whatever it is. And every time I do it, I'm really glad I did. And when I don't, it's just because, you know, the schedule doesn't permit it or, you know, logistics. It's never because I don't feel like it because, as I say, it is invariably uh, a fantastic enriching experience so anyway kevin russell uh you're gonna meet him and and he's really worth knowing he's a guy who is extremely thoughtful comes from a um mormon upbringing and uh just sort of 
fought and and explored and worked his way out of the world that he was born into into uh, a much more intentional thoughtful world um which is a beautiful thing and you know you might look at it and say well you know how's that how's that just not selfishness right we all want to live the richest life we can and so why should we admire someone who finds ways to enrich his experience and it's true uh it is a selfish thing in the sense that you know each of us is a self that we're taking care of but it's also a very generous thing because when you do that you show other people that it can be done you're not necessarily showing them the path to take because i think everyone has to cut their own path uh through that particular wilderness but you are showing them that it's possible that it's worth trying that there's a a destination worth uh heading toward and you know i i'm thinking about things like this metaphorically a lot these days paths and movement and time and you know i'm looking at these all this travel looking at forests and a lot of it's sad because a lot of the western united states uh, a lot of the trees are dead um, either fire you can see where fire has gone through recently or uh, more disturbing um, pine beetles their infestations that are just wiping out hundreds and probably thousands tens of thousands of of acres of pine trees but it's at the same time i'm i'm struck by the fact that that's not what those mountains looked like 200 or 300 years ago and part of the problem is that they've been replanted with these monoculture crops that are you know by forestry companies and so these trees grow quickly and straight and they're good for lumber and they're easy to harvest and so on and so forth so when even when you look at what appears to be a healthy mountainside it's not really that's a a manipulated it's essentially being farmed and the reason that an infestation like this is so devastating is that you've got one species. And so, you know, all the whatever was growing there naturally in a mixed forest, the hemlocks and the maples and the oaks and so on, they're all gone uh, because they're not commercially useful to these companies or they interfere with the, the logging operation or whatever it is. They grow at a different rate. And so everything that we're looking at is even the things that we think are natural are man, are very manipulated, very artificial, very much um, a result of our interference. And yet, I'm also like, come on, Chris, relax, look at it. It's beautiful. It's a it's a mountainside covered with beautiful green, lush vegetation. That's beautiful, right? And so it's always this struggle between enjoying nature and yet being aware of the fact that there's very little true nature to be seen anymore 
And, you know, a lot of us are blinded by the shifting baseline phenomenon, which is that the world you grew up in, the world that you first saw is the world that you think of as natural. So, you know, when I was a kid, there were lots of frogs in the streams and I would catch the frogs and, you know, my friends and I would go out hunting frogs. It was all fun. Now there are no frogs in those streams, but the kids who are born now, they don't miss them because they never knew that there were frogs in those streams. Now, this is something I run into all the time in my research for Civilized to Death and, and Sex at Dawn. These, you know, whenever you're looking at prehistory, people always, it's very common for people to say, well, it's so difficult to survive. It's this Neo-Hobbesian view that, you know, life before the state was so difficult and so hard to find food and so on and so forth. But that's because they're looking at the world as it is now. They're, they're looking at a beach and seeing nothing on it. Well, there's nothing on it because all the fish have been overfished, because the water's polluted, because there's a fraction of the life that was in that ocean 300 years ago or 10,000 years ago. I mean, they talk about cod shoals that were so thick off Newfoundland that you could walk across the ocean on the backs of these fish that were so tightly packed. The, the old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest I've seen described as so dense that you couldn't walk between the trunks of the trees. They were so densely packed. Life was so lush and there were so few people that it wasn't a struggle to survive. This is, I think, the greatest lie in the history of, of mankind, actually, that civilization serves us. I think, in fact, we serve civilization. Uh, speaking of civilized to death, if you want to do me a solid, uh, please pre-order the book. If you're planning to get it uh, when it comes out October 1st, if you pre-order it, that looks great to my publisher. Uh, it's very encouraging to them. It encourages them to invest more in promoting the book because they see the enthusiasm uh, behind it. They see that I've got an audience that is supportive and, and, you know, which is fantastic for me. It gives me some leverage. Um, and also, all those sales will go toward the first week's numbers. And so if we get a big surge out of the gate that first week, then that gets attention from uh, reviewers and maybe you'll get us on a bestseller list somewhere. And so all those things snowball. So if you plan on buying the book, um, please consider pre-ordering it. I know it's a hard copy, so it's, you know, 10 bucks more than the paperback's going to be a year from now. But if you can afford it, uh, I'd really appreciate it. Along those lines, I'm going to New York. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to L.A. in um, late August in uh, probably about 10 days to read the audio book. Um, so that'll be fun. And then uh, in October, I'm going to be on a book tour. I'll be in New York, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, probably San Francisco, and L.A. Um, so cities may be added to that. I'll post them on my website. Uh, they're not up there yet because we're still working out the dates, but um, that's happening right now. This episode, I'm supposed to do this at the beginning, um, <clears throat> so, but it's 11 minutes in and I'm just getting to it. But I love these, this sponsor. This is Sunbasket. I honestly don't know how these people stay in business. 
uh, charging what they're charging. But you get um, these meals sent to your door, organic produce, clean ingredients. Uh, they've got all sorts of options with paleo, uh, carb-conscious, gluten-free, whatever you're into. They've got 18 different recipes per week. You can skip a week. You can cancel. There's never an obligation. This is a no-bullshit company we're talking about here. Um, the recipes are easy. You get this recipe book every week with all 18 recipes. Even if you're only getting, you know, if you're two people, you're getting, you know, two meals or whatever it is per week, you still get the recipe book with all the recipes. And it's nice. It's glossy, full color. It's They're nice books. Um, and so you can use those recipes later on your own, buy your own ingredient, ingredients or come back and order stuff through them, whatever. Um, everything's portioned out. Uh, you eat things you'd never make for yourself. These are, you know, Thai dishes and you know, Chinese dishes and all sorts of, you know, delicious exotic stuff that, let's face it, most of us don't know how to do. It's intimidating. Uh, I wouldn't know where to buy most of the stuff. I mean, I love Thai food, but I, I think I've made Thai curry once in my life, and it's my favorite cuisine. Where do you buy lemongrass? I don't fucking know. What is galangong? I don't know. I just know it tastes good, but I wouldn't know how to make it. Um, anyway, if you use the discount code sunbasket at sunbasket.com slash TS, tangentially speaking, you get half off your first two orders. That's 30 bucks off a regularly priced $60 order, uh, the first two of them. You end up paying 5 bucks per portion. Now, these portions are large enough that two people could comfortably eat one of these portions. So now you're talking about $2.50 a portion. Look, I spent 5 bucks for a fucking cold brew a couple days ago. I don't know how... That's why I say I don't know how they make money on this. But apparently they're making money... And they're delivering quality products. So give them a try. Sunbasket.com forward slash TS. Tell them Chris sent you and let me know what you think. All right. Before I start sneezing again, I'm going to read this poem. I haven't read a poem to you for a long time. And I always get emails from people saying, why don't you read more poetry? I love that. Which blows my mind. I didn't think anybody liked poetry, but... I hope I don't start sneezing in the middle of this, um, but this poem is called God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. I think I might have read this in one of the Romas a few years ago, um, but it's it's a poem I'm reminded of when I'm struggling with that question of, you know, do I sit back and enjoy this beautiful view of the mountains, or do I think about the fact that these mountains are mere shadows of what they look like before miners and loggers came in and just fucking decimated everything um so here it is the world is charged with the grandeur of god it will flame out like shining from shook foil it gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed why do men then now not wreck his rod generations have trod have trod have trod and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge, and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. 
And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs. Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. Gerard Manley, Manley Hopkins was, I, I believe, a Christian monk, um, 19th century. And I don't, I don't see this in terms of God, but if we substitute the word God for nature or higher being or something like that, it makes a lot of sense to me. Especially, you know, these generations have trod, have trod, have trod. All is seared with trade, smeared with toil, wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. I, I mean, yeah, I feel that. We have just pounded the shit out of this planet. And yet, and yet, somehow there's something undefeated. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. So that's what makes this poetry. Just put those words together. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. Fucking beautiful. Uh, along those lines, I've been watching um, Deadwood again. I don't know if how much I've talked about that, but if you're into this juxtaposition of beauty and ugliness and meaning and meaninglessness and just such a sophisticated, often funny, often disturbing um, examination of some of these eternal questions deadwood fucking great great show okay i'm done talking i gotta go upload this and uh get out of the van it's getting toasty in here thank you for listening to this podcast and uh i will catch you next week hope you enjoy meeting kevin russell i'm gonna play you out with a tune called studebaker which is written by Warren Zevon. You may know him from Werewolves of London. That was his most famous song, strangely. Not a very typical song for him. Uh, those of you who know it will appreciate this. I was having a beer with a guy in Barcelona years ago. Didn't know him very well, but we were connecting over music, and we liked a lot of it. I think Steely Dan was the first band. I was like, wow, you like Steely Dan? Oh, my God, I love Steely Dan. And at one point I said to him, Hey, are you into Warren Zevon at all? And he said, Little old lady got mutilated late last night. Werewolves of London. So if you know that song, you'll you'll understand how apt that was. Anyway, this song's called Studebaker. Written by Warren about the sort of travails of being a young man. No money, not knowing what to do with your life. Trying to figure it out. Driving a shitty old car that keeps breaking down. And uh, it's sung by his son, Jordan, who sounds a lot like his dad. And I guess maybe the reason I'm playing this is it's been about a year since my dad died. And uh, people always talk about how much I sound like him. So I don't know. There's a connection. Uh, or maybe that's not why. Maybe I'm playing it because my van just broke down or I don't know why. But... For some reason, this song kept coming in, in, into my head, and I wanted to share it with you. So this is Jordan Zevon singing his dad's song, Studebaker. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for f- supporting the podcast, however you do it. And uh, I'll catch you soon. I left my home in Monterey, just another little prospects man. I'd rather work in the foundry than put fishes in a can. traveled far And I've spent all my money on this misbegotten car I'm up against it all Like a leaf against the wind And the Studebaker keeps on breaking down again My Studebaker Friend
All right, children. Uncle Chris is back. Uh, I'm in Whitefish, Montana, in an empty apartment. Uh, where are we? Are we in Happy Z- Happy Zone, or what's the name of the neighborhood here? Uh, Happy Haven, or something? Is it? I, I saw it on my phone it. earlier. Oh, really? Yeah. It feels like a happy haven. It's, I like that. It is a happy haven. And this is Mr. Kevin Russell. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Yeah. Yep. I used to be married to a woman whose last name was Rosay. Rosay. Which is French for Russell, basically. Oh. I don't even know what Russell means. <laughs> yeah, if anything. Oh. You know. yeah. Um, we, before we get into this, I should say that yesterday... Kevin did a podcast with Anya Kotz, uh, host of The Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, in which you talked about uh, some things. I don't want to overlap, but I want to give people a chance to get the full Kevin Russell experience. All right. So you guys, what did you talk about yesterday? The You're being raised Mormon and... You, the, you know, she her eye contact will make... I mean, she just like, your your soul is open. She seduced so you, did within she? Within five minutes, I talked about my first masturbation experience. Oh, and then that yeah. turned into like the bishop interviews that are like all the rage in Mormonism right now. There's a whole like front of people that are um, on the forefront. Um uh, Sam Smith was a bishop, and he got excommunicated for bringing awareness to this issue, which is they take young young adults around from anywhere from eight up until sixteen. But like I remember my like the most intimidating, embarrassing uh, experience was being led into a room, closed door, and you're sitting there with the bishop, somebody who is completely, I mean, talk about like archetypical. Um, like amplification, you know, he's there every week and he Mm. is pontificating over you and all of your elders, all of the people you call brothers and sisters are looking up to this person and then you're led into this room and then he looks you in the eye and asks you what you think about, like if you, if you have masturbated and you're like, I don't know what this is, you know, and then, you know, if you, if you, if you do any of those things, then they give you your, you know, what you have to do, like forego the sacrament Mm. or whatever it is. Right, you have to. So it's like a confessional sort of thing, I guess. Kind of, but they they try. Yeah, they don't. They definitely don't call it confessional. Right. These are these are the bishop interviews. What do you think about when you masturbate? I think I would say you, bishop, (laughs) you and your sweet sweet ass. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, and it's for females well as well. I mean, this is it's a big issue in the church right now, and uh, they're in a lot of hot water. This Sam Smith guy, yeah, this bishop, he's out there with. Uh, protect the children. There's yeah. his little mo, uh, and he's he's because it is a form of abuse, isn't it? That's what he's calling it. For sure. yeah. yeah, yeah. So okay. So anyway, if you want to hear uh, about Kevin's masturbatory history, <laughs> you can find that and more uh, on the Millennials Guide to Saving the World episode. I don't know, but it'll be out probably before this comes out because I have a bigger backlog. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about. Some of the other stuff that, I mean, things that have happened, uh, you know, in the sort of second phase of your life here. Uh, and we've, we, I should say that we met because you listened to my podcast and you, what happened? You reached out and we're like, hey, you're in Montana, come by. And we're like, sure, we'll come by. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Um, oh, no, we ran into you in the parking lot. That's what yeah, it was. It yeah, wasn't yeah. Uh, an email. It was we actually ran into you in the parking lot. Um, anyway, so we've been hanging out the last couple of days, so I have a general 
sort of sense of the trajectory of your life over the last 10 years or so. I wanted, like, if we, if it makes sense to you, maybe start with Alaska. Yeah. Like, so where were you? You, I mean, I guess Anya will have taken you up through your leaving the church and sort of striking out on your own. Yeah. We were all all over the place where you were in San Diego. You're let's talk about your dad before I forget. Cause your dad's trajectory is cause I, you, we met your brother yesterday, and I know I'm rambling here. Sorry, folks. Tangently speaking, people. <laughs> so, but it's so confusing to hear you and your brother talk about your dad because half it sounds like you're talking about two different people, and it's I keep getting like, wait, no, that's the same guy. Yeah, the same guy who was such a bastard to them when they were young was the guy who listened to Tangentially Speaking yeah. and read Sex at Dawn and like had your mother listen to the audio tape and mm-hmm. a long drive and was reading all this Timothy Leary and Huxley. And, me, uh, yeah, like Richard Dawkins and The God Delusion. And this is a, yeah. I mean, he was Mormon his whole life. I mean, he took such a left turn late in life. Completely, yeah. So let's, yeah. if you can, just sort of run through the whole thing with the, the salesman of the year and all that. Yeah, we were, I mean, he was, we were pretty, like, pretty poor, you know, and he was doing absolutely anything to get by and, you know, running a post yard and all of us kids, you know, we all had various jobs delivering papers, like like picking these type of beetles off of like leaves in the fields or like uh, my brother and I got like, I think it was $5 per like gopher we killed in the in the farmers and the cow cow pastures because they had some disease and mm. you can't use a rifle because it'll scare away the the, the cows and so you use a you use a bow and arrow really um, yeah I mean it was just a you lot have to of be a good shot yeah and I don't I'm, I'm I mean again I was a kid and my memory's not that great so right. I like to think that especially when to California and I wonder how much I've embellished and he's like oh yeah I shot it right through the head every yeah. time and you know like I mean I know that's something we did but I don't I don't think it was like yeah. made anything more than like 40 but you're bucks. scrapping for money and yeah you, you were always, living always. up here at that point yeah in Columbia Heights and right. then we moved to like he got a couple he was still running the post yard and then um, he was selling cars and then that like brought out the salesmanship with him and um, Apple computer was running a, a competition for best salesman and he ended up winning. And, and what year is this? I have no Roughly? Idea. Probably uh, early nineties. So was the Apple two you said? Yeah, or? this is early. So he started selling the, the Apple computers, you right. know, with like big floppy. I remember, disc. Oh, like I remember, uh, he, him having one of the apples with a 20 megabyte hard drive and it was a brick it was bigger like three of our laptops today and i i installed a 220 kilobyte game or something he got so mad because i was taking up that much space on the computer right. you know like 200 kilos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he yeah. got uh, he ended up winning that competition and uh, our whole family moved down to uh down to oceanside and he was working apple computers which then was subsidiary computer land and you know just he worked himself and then he was the ceo and of computer, of computer land? land yeah 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 and then they got bought by best buy or somebody they got or? by some uh like Apple's the head of it, you know, like Google Alphabet, and they have all those different ones. So I don't uh, know how the hierarchy right, worked back then, right. but like Computerland was basically the storefront, and then they got bought out by 
something with an A, you know, one of these other computers, but then right. the, everything crashed. Like he got out at the good time. Oh, and, really? And then like all those like storefront circuit city, everything yeah. crashed like that. And then he went to be a CEO of a, of a software company, a medical billing company. And then my whole family worked for this, this, it was a very small team of like, I think it was like 20 when my dad came on board and he flew out to a stone. He ran a competition to find the best programmer in the world. And it was it happened to be an Estonia guy. And so he flew out there and then set up one of the first like Estonian downtown, you know, like a bunch of jobs. And he got up to like a hundred plus programmers through that. Wow. Yeah. And from what you were saying, I mean that, you know, you just talked for five minutes and you told a story that's like a lifetime, you know, you go from scrounging in Montana, you win a competition, you move to Oceanside and you become CEO of this computer consumer store, yeah. right? Chain of stores. Oh, that computer distribution. Yeah. In how many years? 10. I mean, like, that's just I'm throwing out a number, but it right. was like very, very, yeah, it was very rapid. Yeah. And now the downside of that is that he was stressed out and took it out on you guys. Uh, my little brother and I, yeah. yeah. Um, I confronted him like after his transition, and we can talk about that, but how I, how I explained it to him was I understand now as an adult and as a father that, that he did not develop the adequate tools to handle the stresses of life in a healthy way and having five children and no kids and you know only mormonism to fall back on a tool set for emotional growth and emotional stability he he didn't develop those and like we all have ability to control the world around us but do we do it through our like primate nature which is domination which is control intimidation humiliation or do we do it through, yeah. you know, like empathy, compassion? Okay, space. Franz Duvall would not like your use <laughs> of primate nature. <laughs> All right, yes, yes. Because there's a lot of cooperation and kindness and empathy and yeah. in primates. I, I meant like, to, okay, so don't put it on the Demonization primates. Demonization of the primates, see, yeah. How about just pulling into our innate self when you pull away from what I consider to be human, then we have that base instinct, which is just like like reflex over any reasoned action. See, th this is a big problem. Part of civilized to death is where I feel like we there's a struggle that we have surrendered that I want to restart over the definition of what is human, what is animal, what what is natural. You know what I mean? Because there's this sort of overlying. There's this sense that there's what lies beneath is brutal and horrible oh. and uncontrolled and you call that neo hobbesian right and there's the neo hobbesian yeah. argument like right that we're nasty brutish short you know and yeah. it's only the veneer of civilization that keeps us from destroying ourselves and each other then whereas I, yeah, to me civilization seems to be much more destructive of ourselves and each very other true. so it could be like him actually reacting to his environment that gave him that tool set which right. is domination which is true right. because that's like right. that's like externalization of like the amygdalic response right which is right. just like fight fight you know yeah so like that resulted in like pretty severe abuse um physical mm. emotional like uh, those those went into it yeah yeah he must have been terrified i mean you know you i think you used the phrase the other night like life lifelong imposter syndrome or something like he must have felt 
Because you said he didn't really know anything about technology. Not right? really. Like he, you know, he always used my mom to compose his email and yeah. like, like these, like, as I see it now, my dad was so much, like everything was confidence, not much of the competence, but you can get so far in life. <laughs> right. And that's not the, I mean, he is, he is a brilliant, or was a brilliant man. And he died like, like what, six months ago. No, or? it's it's almost two years. Almost going two years on now. Ago. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, but that 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 confidence which he left me this is where like i guess my framing of my dad now my 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 ability to like understand that there's a part of my metabolism that goes into this cell structure that's dedicated to all things my dad mm. no longer has that external stimuli to keep it active yeah so it's like well how do i frame that <clears throat> well my whole entire upbringing had this man when I saw him in the environment amongst his peers amongst anything he commanded attention he commanded that room and it was all through his confidence there it was unwavering but then we saw the like as a kid I also saw the flip side of that but when right. I need to feel that I know that that's within me that I can walk into any room or just randomly like when I've flown to Dubai and I'm at this science festival as the keynote and I'm out there and I'm just in front of it it was not just me that was out there it was my dad my dad's confidence that like right. you know I'm I don't have a high school degree I'm dyslexic all of these things you know the stories that tell myself that I'm less than that I am my dad was there to be like look you got flown out to Dubai. You're out here on stage. Mm. And, and that confidence stays with me. Mm. Was there a desperation underlying that confidence in him? If you say, yeah, yeah. If, if I look at like what was propelling that, like what I understand now through psychology is we all have imposter syndrome. Right. And his was probably very severe because, right. again, he didn't have the college degree. All of those things that would be on a resume for a CEO my dad didn't have yet he had an incredible story the story mm. that but again you you could feel like a con man in that situation you know where you just like you know it's but a con man at the root of that is confidence man my dad was not a not a con man because it's what he was able to do to the people around him was to project that confidence and then they they felt confident so as he worked with the programmers it was like he would he would talk to them in a way that he would find their want, their need, and then he would put that as a carrot. And he was just so brilliant about putting the carrot to pull out their best side, their best work. Sounds a little bit like Steve Jobs. Yeah, the, with has the dark his own side reality well. distortion. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the, you know, it became, you know, I, like in front of me, it was like I could, I couldn't play a part of the story like I wanted to. You know, this is the reality the the abuse and who you are now, because like after my my sister had got cancer, he changed. It was like he, he started those initial philosoph philosophical questions that you have, like, you know, if there's a God, how does he let, you know, like him being Mormon his whole life? He never thought about those things that like if there's a God, how does he let genocide happen? How does he let this happen and to him? It became so personal that my beautiful little daughter you know, just starting her life, just having her kids, you know, she's lived faithful, everything. She is just, you know, dedicated to the, to the church and, you know, to the family. Mm. And now she gets this, you know, life threatening ailment. And he, at, at that point, it was like 
threw his hands up and mm. and you know he started stopped going to church he started reading christopher hitchens you know not dawkins and there's no going back after that was he still in the game economically at that point or he had he retired yeah, or I, what? kind of like there was there was a lot of and i don't know like the inner workings of what happened at that software company but they were there for eight years or something and how they left he was able to do enough and then uh, my his dad had died and had he was like a hoarder but hoarder of equipment and so there was like 1100 pieces of random equipment like excavators and dozers and just and spread throughout like five planes you know like i open up we would just go down to the yard dad and i and he was like oh, let's go shopping and we'd have five gallon buckets just open random containers and there would just be you know everything from the auction you know that they just auction off there's like helicopter engines and just literally everything so this is the your grandfather, my grandfather. yeah yeah it's crazy just accumulated it over his whole lifetime these auction you know at, at the auctions and then and then i mean there's still yards full of his stuff that it's just really? trying and so he after the software company i think that's when he like the imposter and, and what happened with my sister and all that like it i think pulled the rug out from under him and he didn't i saw him a couple times try again like in the, like to be a player in the world again but it, he was gonna like take the aluminum plant to make it a data center and i saw him like alive again you know like mm. this like i saw that confidence again but when he was doing the equipment i more felt like this is safety this is secure and then he was able to focus on making this magical playground for all the grandkids at that point mm. and it was like it was beautiful to see and it was kind of like i saw it as there's two sides of me one it's like amazing like i could never have asked for a better grand grandfather for all of these nieces and nephews it was it was a playground at all of, i mean as soon as he woke up to when he went to bed was making this environment this playground for mm. for the grandkids but then there was that other side of me that, you know, I was just, I was, I was meeting all these people, going to all these conferences, doing speeches. And I'm seeing, I'm also like, at that time I was living in San, San Francisco and I'm looking at these CEOs, I'm looking at these people that are just, I saw that confidence in them and what they were, what they were accomplishing. And then I would like, I'd, I'd look at my dad, like sitting on a tractor and this is a very like ignorant side of me, but like that, the angry side of me, that's like all that abuse and like here you are doing what your dad did and you're sitting on a tractor and it's like no like where i thought you were you know you're there top of the world i thought you right. were next to jobs like next to next to those things but as then i had a daughter because you then, and your brother sort of paid for him to be there i didn't look at it that but yeah like it yeah. definitely we didn't have a relationship with our father like that that there wasn't a time for him like there wasn't time for for us, I guess, in the equation of mm. what he was, what his career and his life trajectory was. And now he's trying to make it up to the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. You guys got skipped. Yeah. Yeah. How did you end up in Alaska? What was the story there? Uh, it, my dad called me, I was running my internet cafe, had just got a, got divorced from being married in the temple after did my mission. This in was Detroit shortly after and, you left the church. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, He's like, hey, um, we got this guy who bought some some equipment from us. It's running a gold mine up in Alaska, and we're thinking about buying the mine. Would you want to go stay up there and see if it can actually be profitable? And at that point, I was so lost, you know, just coming out of the church, and and I didn't have anything else. I was just like, yeah, you know, like 
the shop was doing, you know, like it's thing. It's a cash business. I enjoyed like having so many people around. And Where was it? It was down Escondido in, oh, yeah. in California. And so like it was, there. it was, it was fun. It's a, it was like, I strategically placed it like next to a middle school and high uh, school. And so like kids, when they get mm-hmm. off, I would be like, Hey, I made the deal with like the parents, um, that for every hour they use the computer for homework, then they could have an hour free for game time, yeah. you know? And then like, I do like all nighters where at Saturday they drop their kids off at eight o'clock and then the doors lock and then they unlock at eight o'clock in the morning and have pizza. And we would just do these all nighters. I had a webcam that the parents could Seriously? log in and watch. And it was so just, you were doing like make a bunch of, night? yeah, but it was cool because they were like all, you know, 13, 14 year old kids Nerds. and we were playing these, you know, I had yeah. 20 computers on this wall to, 20 computers in this wall and then we would have competitions but this was before any twitch this was before you know there was barely myspace you know right. and so this was like land it was so hard to set up your land party you know to have that experience and it was three bucks an hour so people land party lan uh, yeah local yeah. area network right. yeah right. Uh, were you always a nerd? How did, how did you? Thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, like, so you were you were early into a lot of this Internet stuff. Uh, is that because of your dad that he was bringing home these Apple computers and you yeah. were fascinated by that? Yeah. And I mean, it was such a it was something that I contro- could control and try mm. to understand. And, right. you know, like there would be these junk computers that. You know, I knew my dad would know how to fix it. I I love that he never did this. He would just be like, figure it out, you know, figure it out. And that allowed me to like, holy shit, I can hack this computer. I was like overclocking Celeron 325As, you know, to where I was getting 800 hertz out of this little, you know, and I'm like literally shorting it out, like starting little (laughs) fires in my room, you know, with these e-machines and... um, But yeah, but but to Alaska, you know, so he's like, uh, go up there and... And I, the shop it provided money and I didn't have the church saying, you know, check this off, check this off. And then you're going to have a good life, good experience, good emotional stability. I didn't have that. And so society said, well, go make a bunch of money, go out drinking, go to Vegas, blow a bunch of money, you know? And like in that process, I went from like, I don't know, probably around 280 and then I ballooned up to about 400. But it's it's hard to know. Have you ever noticed how much scales go up to? Usually like two fifty five, two eighty five on a big one. Right. But when you're over three fifty, it's just like pegging, and so you never really have a definitive Uh, answer. I didn't have health insurance. Like I never got you know checked, and so. So wait, you went from two eighty to somewhere around four hundred pounds in how long a time? Probably a year. Um, and Dude. this was like, and I went and bought the big truck, the boat, you know, all those things society said. you had a bunch of money. It's money and cash business just coming in. Right. Yeah. yeah. My little brother got me to drink, for, you know, and like then smoke pot. And so it was just Were like. Were you happy? That's it, like, I was doing all the things that the movies and society and reality show, they, they do these things. Well, now I'm allowed to. It's like the f- fucking Amish and the Rungspringers, you know, yeah. like I'm now 25 or six or something. And. I'm just coming like, oh, I fucking, this is reality. So reality says, you know, through that lens was do this, this, and this, and you're going to have a good life. I didn't. I ended up 400 pounds depressed, super depressed, you know, started having those like thoughts again about like, man, I don't want to wake up. You know, this is, this is shit. But then it's like, put on the show, go out, take all your friends out, go out drinking, go, you know, whatever it is. 
And when I got that call from my dad, I like thought about it just completely. You got to be flown in on a little Piper cub. Like there's nobody for hundreds of miles in the middle of Alaska. That solitude, just like, I couldn't think of anything else. Couldn't sleep, couldn't think of, and I had just a couple days to like make it, you know, make the decision. Mm. And I said, yeah, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. So like, cause you the, knew you were on a downward spiral, if, even uh, though yeah. you were making money uh-huh. and outwardly successful, yeah, yeah. you were getting depressed and your body was falling apart uh-huh. and everything was, yeah, man. Was that because of like that you felt lost, uh, a set adrift when you left the church that like Very that had so. been your world and now you're out here alone. Yeah. Well, yeah. so like I left my, um, just I'll try to tell a long story pretty quickly here, but like on my mission, you know, I got like mugged and, you know, all life put on is eight mile in Detroit. I'm, you know, like a big Mormon white kid on, you know, target eight mile. And yeah, it's yeah. quite the target. It's not like they were really mugging me except like, that's an easy target. You know, you yeah. just walk by and, you know, take the kid's money or whatnot. But um, in the Book of Mormon, there's the Moroni's promise, you know, and this is like when you're out proselyting, knocking doors, it's like, no, 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 there's a promise in the book that if you pray of these things, you'll know them to be true. And I'm like, do I really believe, like, I prayed, do I, do I really know that? And I mean, all right, so like I did that, you know, you pray until you get your your message. And I prayed for hours and hours and and I can, I felt like when I think back to it now, I know that that was my core of authenticity, that pleading, that beckoning, that just that, that, I mean, I was sobbing for an answer and just let me know, God, let me know that you're there. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm, I could, anybody who needs, I have the, the, the will to pull them into the celestial kingdom, pull them into back into the straight and narrow. And it was met with nothing, just nothing, just silence. And what I convinced myself in that moment was I had a broken receiver that God's there. But my challenge in life was my receiver for divine inspiration was broken. Mm. So I'll have to go through my whole life without that. And so the hypocrisy of not being able to like truly say that Moroni's promise was there, it wasn't. So I came home early and that's a big, that's a shame for for people in the church to like leave your mission early. Mm. Um, but fast forward to going to Alaska, um, it wasn't no longer that I was a broken receiver. I was just broken. And that feeling at your core that you're you're just a broken person. This is why you were abused as a kid. This is why you did this. Or this is why everything. I wasn't put on God that God can't. God's there. God's ready for you, but He's not because you're you don't have the receiver to that. Then to take that, put that all on myself that right. I am then broken. I had to. I had. It was either I'm I'm not going to continue, or. I need to disconnect. And that's what was Alaska was for me. Mm. So that was, I mean, quite literally a life or death decision. In the moment, I didn't frame it like that. But like looking back now, it was like if I would have stayed on that path, like I wasn't having suicidal ideation. It was just if I was on that path, that's a path with no purpose, 
no mm. hope, no right. direction, no, no understanding. Although it sounds like you were, I mean, the, the thing you were doing with the kids, that sounds so cool. And so <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Decent and uh-huh. kind and giving them a community space. And especially kids like that who have trouble probably making friends and being comfortable. I mean, you were finding meaning in there. Maybe that was the only part, was, but that sounds that, pretty meaningful. It, it, yeah, and and I think that that was that was got got me through the day to day. Yeah. But then there was the, the there was the shadow that I had, yeah. the shadow of not you know of feeling broken. That's yeah. what I can this first time articulating that this was me changing it from a broken receiver to receive something greater than myself. That was just on me. Now I am just a broken individual at my core. So right. that was looming as I ran the shop. Yeah, all that self blame. I wonder if if during that period when you were reaching out and praying and waiting and looking for a sign, how different your life would be if uh, something had happened. You know, yeah. an earthquake, a tornado. Right. Uh, you know, whatever. I mean, any sort of random event at a moment like that could be interpreted as a sign of God, you know, announcing his presence to you. And those were, I was having that. I was having all of those things. I would hear something outside and I was like, that's God, that's God. But then I would sit with it and go, that's me. That's, that's Uh my hope. That's my, that come on. And that was my authenticity saying, no, that's uh, not it. That's and so I. So you I wouldn't let yourself that. fool yourself. No, not in that. And that's because I had that thought when the gun was pulled out that it's okay, Elder. You're wearing your spiritual armor, which now I I mock and I was like, dude, you believed your underwear would save you from bullets, and right. I use that now that beliefs override reason, and so you better be careful about what you believe. Right. Yeah, bullets don't really give a shit what you believe. Uh-huh. But we were raised on stories. Yeah, like our elders told us the stories that like co- or firefighters, you know, would come out and they'd be burned all the way up until their garments, cops being stabbed and it not going through the garments. I mean, these were regular stories that every Mormon kid is told that gives the power when your life is put in danger for your first initial thought. The yeah. thing is to reinforce their belief system. Yeah. It's interesting. I I, um, studied martial arts when I was a kid. I was thinking about this last night. And I think like so many kids who study martial arts, I did it out of fear and vulnerability. And to give myself that same sort of magical cloak of invincibility. You know, I was a dorky, scared 13-year-old kid who thought, if someone pulls a gun on me, I know what to do. I know how to handle that. I've practiced that on Tuesdays and Thursdays for six months now, you know, um, thank God it never happened. I don't know if you ever heard the story when I, I told the story when I, about when I was hitchhiking back from Alaska one year, I was coming from Montreal down to New York and I had this knife in my boot that I always had this knife for years when I was hitchhiking and it was just a, I don't know, the blade was maybe four inches long and another four inch handle and it clipped inside. It was like had a belt clip and I kept it inside my, I wore army boots at the time, these NAM boots. <laughs> I clipped it inside that and it was under my jeans. And the idea was just like, if things got really, really hairy in a hitchhiking situation, it, I, my right 
hand would be near it because yeah. I'm sitting with my, you know, in the car. Um, and I could last, uh, what's the word, uh, worst case scenario, just pull it out and be like, let me out. You know? sure, sure. Never did. Never. Nothing ever happened that put me anywhere near that kind of situation. But it was just for security, whatever. And uh, anyway, so I was upstate New York. Um, probably, I, I saw this TV show recently, Escape at Danamora. Have you seen that? Uh-uh. Oh, Benicio Del Toro, who you sort of look like, by the way. Well, I don't know if anyone's you. ever told uh-huh. you that. Uh-huh. Uh, Benicio Del Toro. And um, anyway, it's a great show. It was really interesting. It was directed by uh, the guy who did Tropic Thunder, oh, Ben really? Stiller. Yeah, nice. yeah. Nice. Great. Not funny. This isn't. This is about these guys who escaped from a prison. Anyway, I was right near that prison. Now I realize I was near that prison. And I'm like out on this highway, forest everywhere. The sun's going down. I'm thinking, shit, I'm going to have to like, you know, walk into the woods and find a place to set up a camp. And this sucks. I don't have any food. And uh. Anyway, uh, this guy pulls over. And I get in the car and he's, you know, like a military looking dude. He's got short hair, big muscles, tattoos, like short sleeve shirt, you know. Like, uh, and uh, he's like, yeah, where are you going? I'm like, I was going to New York, Westchester. So he's like, yeah, I can take you 30 miles. I'm like, okay, great. And we're going down and it's just silence. And he says, uh, so you like knives like that, like half question, half statement, you know, you like knives. I said, yeah. I like knives. Why? And he said, well, I noticed you have one in your right boot there. I'm like, how the fuck did that guy see? It's under my jeans. He saw it driving by and he still picked me up. And I said, well, oh, that's just a thing I have, you know, for hitchhiking and blah, blah, blah. And he says, yeah, I like knives too. And he reaches down to his belt buckle and pulls out this dagger that his belt buckle was the handle of the dagger. Uh, he pulls it out and swings it out, and it's right in front of my face, uh, right? I'm thinking, fuck, <laughs> this is it. This is where I die, I'm you know? I'm a statistic. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and it was really nice, though. It was a cool design, you know, and the dagger part was under his belt, you know? And I was like, wow, that's really nice. Can I hold it? And he said, yeah, sure. I took it out of his hand i'm like i'm not gonna die i don't think i'm gonna die and i gave it back i was like wow that's cool man that's really nice he says yeah i got another one here and he pulls another one out of his boot and he had he had like three or four knives on him anyway turns out this guy was a warden at the prison and that's how he saw the knife he was wow. trained yeah. to see that kind of bulge wow. you know and i learned at that moment like my gestures towards security by carrying a weapon or studying martial arts, it's useless. It's abs- it, In fact, it's going to get me in more trouble yeah. because I'm going to think that I am going to go into a knife fight with a dude who's been in 50 knife fights. Yes who's had 50 knives pulled on him and he's dealt with every one of them. And I think I'm the one who's going to get the drop on this dude. Mm -hmm. No way. I just realized like I'm like, there are these worlds that I'm floating through Mm -hmm. and I'm an amateur in all of them, but each one of those worlds contains pros. And if I think I, as an amateur, I'm going to go up against any of these pros, I'm a fucking fool. And my best defense is my vulnerability. Yeah. It's my authenticity, which is a term you were using. Yeah. That's yeah. my best defense. Yep. Don't 
think you're going to fight your way out of anything because mm-hmm. you're not punk. You're soft. Isn't it? So, so your last episode, you talked about being the white belts, you know, the blue belts. Go into this. Oh, and psychedelics. Like, yeah. Think about like this in a personal sense. We all have anxieties, right? We yeah. all have this mind that has, ability, that has the ability to simulate all of these uh, the, these situations. So like I'm in Detroit and I'm like, holy shit, I'm vulnerable. You know, what does this tell me? Or like when I'm in Africa, boom, I have all these simulations. Well, you, you project yourself into these simulations and you want to project yourself. So like the Aikido or like the jujitsu for me, like I project myself, well, I do this, I do this or this, but like, what we don't have or what we all have is the psychological defect of the Dunning Kruger. Right. And so like, it's like, Oh, I, you know, I did Taekwondo for eight years. I'm going to like, yeah, just show up to a gang and new, you know, like, like, you know, and so it's like, we have, we don't think about what they did for eight years. Exactly. We don't, we project us, but we have to realize. And once you find that core of authenticity, bring that to your simulation, which is like, well, that guy has more knives than me. Like the reality, <laughs> but in the reality is you were telling that story about um was it Carl Jung the, with the dancing? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. what what did he hit there? He's like, Oh, we're about to die. He hit his core of authenticity. Yeah, exactly. That's why I love that story. Yeah. Yeah, that story I might as well quickly Please. tell the story because people are wondering. Uh so the story is Jung and one of his colleagues went to Africa. I think I read this in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, but I read that 30 years ago, so I could be wrong. But the story is they went to Central Africa together as two professors in their 50s with monocles and three-piece suits and you know pocket watches and the whole fucking thing. Silk, you know, silk, uh, what's it called, around your neck. Anyway, so uh, these fancy dudes from Vienna, they go to Central Africa, and they're in some village way back in the dark of Central Africa and the village has a celebration. They're all dancing around the fire. They may or may not have taken some sort of drugs or you know, alcohol. I don't know what, but they're dancing around the fire and some of the warriors have she- um, shields and spears and they're sort of, you know, thrusting toward the fire doing these dances. And at some point the energy starts to shift uh, toward these two doctors who are sitting on their little stools taking notes observing the natives and probably the natives were just like fuck these dudes so they come to our party and they sit in the corner and observe us like we're fucking animals you know anyway they start dancing around these two guys thrusting their spears at them and threatening them and it became clear that they were maybe gonna die here and Jung put down his notebook and took out his his monocle and stood up and started wildly dancing with the Africans, which, of course, made everyone laugh at the sight of this dude and broke the tension. Yeah. And you're right. That's it. I mean, that's a perfect example. He's not going to fight his way out of that. You know, he's not going to talk his way out. The only way out of that is dance yeah. the only way out of that is get naked uh, yeah, just, you know just no pretense bear yourself yeah. yeah i when i was in alaska I, I want to tell stories but when i went to prison that was what happened to me too it's like you know my buddy and i talked to are we gonna like tell some make up a story about how we killed someone or, <laughs> you know like, i don't want to talk about it and, you know yeah. or are we going to tell the truth which is that we got caught stealing a fucking candy bar <laughs> in a grocery store and we decided thank god to just tell the truth yeah because that 
disarmed everybody and they thought we were just hilarious just like it was as if Cheech and Chong had showed up in prison (laughs) so nobody wanted to beat us up or rape us or whatever it's just like these fucking goofballs can you imagine how stupid you have to be (laughs) like yeah that's me man and it ended up like really working out so yeah that's my motto when I get in trouble I I uh roll over like a puppy and just expose my throat and like, yeah. please don't hurt me. Yeah, that's. Yeah. The, I would say that that's the black belt of reality. It's the black belt of just like, you got there, you know? Yeah. If you're stuck in that low level that, oh yeah, I'm going to come here and I'm going to Kimura him and I'm going to jump yeah. on his back and I'm going to do this. The reality is you're escalating. And escalating a system, like any situation with violence or force or anything like that is, is low level. It gets away from you too fast. And everybody is in greater danger when you do that. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, you're going up against someone who knows that mm, battlefield better than you do. You're on his turf. Well, even, well, I mean, I would rather that because they know to dispel it. I'd rather like in the street, if I lost my shit and lost my my shit on a black belt in jujitsu, because then he's just going to submit me and I'm going to wake up going, okay, that was fucking stupid, you know, but if it was somebody who doesn't know and they're a big ass guy and then you scare them and they react violently, you know, they're going to knock you out and then your head bounces off the concrete and they start kicking because they're in that fully fight phase. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I, one of the reasons that I really respect Joe Rogan is the first time I talked with him, first podcast I did with him, we're talking about him doing um, jujitsu and way back in Boston when he was a kid and blah, blah, blah. And I, Mm -hmm. I said like, you know, what was it that propelled you into that and made you so, uh, you know, enthusiastic about it to train all the time? He said, yeah, my stepdad beat me up. And guys in the neighborhood would beat me up and fuck with me. I was small and, you know, he's totally aware of that, right? He's he's yeah. totally aware of the source of that, like, macho f- strength that he has now that, you know, the seed was a scared little boy. Yeah. And he's also, t- he wrote this essay, I don't remember what, what magazine it was in, Vanity Fair or some some big magazine a few years ago. And he was basically the the point of the essay was no matter how much you work out, no matter how much you train, no matter how strong you are, how you know disciplined your diet is, you're going to get old and die. Yeah. <laughs> so don't think that any of this shit that that we're yeah. doing is going to stave off mortality. And also, I think there was a line in there. He's like, you know, a guy can come up behind me with a rock and wipe out all my years of training. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. not, yeah. I don't ever want to convince myself that I'm inv- invincible, no. you know, or anything other than just another soft skulled yeah. primate. Yeah. That, that kind of humility is really a beautiful thing when, you know, there's that guy, he's at the center of this macho universe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's like a God to the, the macho dudes out there. Yeah. But then at the top of the, you know, I said something about this in the last podcast, like how you find it was with um, the yoga teacher mm-hmm. and she's like this world famous yoga teacher te- has taught tens of thousands. She's like flown into Dubai to teach the prince or something. And she's totally unpretentious. 
no none of this crystal gazing bullshit she's like i, I i'm not a religious teacher i'm teaching you how to stretch your back you know yeah yeah i love that like you get to the top of something and there's a humility and a purity yeah yeah, yeah. anyway so alaska you get so tell me that story you fly into alaska you, you're flying from san diego you don't have any like arctic clothing you don't you can't buy that in you san can't diego. buy oh, it's not really available and That's so right. like they told me like just buy when you get into the Fair fairbanks way. yeah but like there was a storm front or something coming in and there was only a limited time that we could drive out because uh, the two rivers were frozen and they'll break up in a week or so they're not sure when it depends on the the temperature and then you can't drive out you can only be so he picked me up and we're like we got to go like there's no stopping or nothing he's like we have everything you need at camp and so yeah. next thing i know i'm in this this big six wheel whatever like military style thing and we get out you know however far from fairbanks and then we get on snowmobiles and we start headed the rest of the way into camp it was just me and this like 80 year old man what happened you want me to go into that yeah <laughs> so this is i've never been hunting i've i mean you know like yeah like up in montana i had like some experiences but this old guy he he pulled out his he stopped on the snowmobile and pulled out the gun and shot into the forest and he's like, all right, get the winch ready. And he opens up the back of his uh, uh, toolbox in the back of the snowmobile. And he pulls out an electric Saza and starts trudging, you know, off. I'm not sure how far. It wasn't too far. And, you know, I get the winch out and start running it with me. And there's a big, big-ass moose that's laying there. And it's bleeding. And, like, you shot a moose. Like, what do we do? Like, no horns or anything. But there's, there's now a moose. So we get up there and, and he, a moose is like the size of a horse. Fucking huge. Yeah. Huge. And this wasn't the biggest of mooses, but this was now our, as he saw it, oh, fuck yeah, we don't have to fly out meat. You know, that's expensive. And so this is here. Yeah. And so he handed me the, uh, uh, the Saza. And then I put like the back leg up and I have never skinned. I don't know anything about this. And I start like sawzine as he took his knife and would cut through. And I'm like, I am at this, I'm in like three hoodies. I'm in like, <laughs> my flannels i'm in like tennis shoes um like tennis yeah shoes. like tennis shoes and like uh, you know the the snowmobiles are going there's like you know a little bit of snow happening and you've and been in alaska for what a couple of hours five six hours at this point <laughs> yeah like we stopped at a little cabin like right before the trailhead and they like gave us some coffee That's and like hilarious. um and like i'm That's looking so and like the blood's coming out and it's like going uh, into the thing and i'm just like what is going and i and it was like on me because it's like, oh, you, you live that life to have those stories. But then there was a reality of like, this thing's twitching as I'm like sawzine and there's like reality. And then it's like, okay, we'll wrap the legs up in the, and the, uh, he showed me how to use the winch to do it. Like the little pulley system yeah. and all four legs we wrapped to it. And he's like, ah, oh, the wolves are eat the rest. And then we winch it up close and then we're dragging it behind us the next four or five miles. The legs. The legs, you know, all four, four big of the legs. Man. That was arrival in Alaska. Yeah, that's nice. Welcome to Alaska. Holy yeah. shit. So how long were you there? Six, six and a half months. And you were working with uh, backhoe? Because yeah, you, you grew up using heavy equipment. So you sort yeah, of knew how to it's do always it. in my family. They've, they've had heavy equipment. Right. God damn. You know what? Next time I come through, I'd love if you can arrange it for, for me to be able to, like, 
do a backhoe. Oh, absolutely. I watch those guys. We mentioned it the other night. I watch Uh those guys and there's an art to the way they do it. There's a, there's a gentleness to the way they use the back of the bucket to like just tap. It, yeah. it, it's, it's like, you know, you brush a woman's cheek with it, the back of your you hand. You can do it's, that. That was like the most meditative experience was because I, so I was on a sleuth box, which means you're at the top of a hill and then there's like at the pit that they use big D nines and they push the, 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 they push the dredge up to you and then you grab it with the excavator and you make a, you know, quarter turn over and you drop it into the sleuth box and the, you don't want to hit the box and you can't see because the arms right here on your right. And so you have like, as you're moving, you want to do it as fluid as possible. And it stops becoming a machine. Like you ever, like when you're in yeah. your car, it's you know, how you can feel right? yeah. it is absolutely like, like our, our ability to extend our sense of self beyond ourself is yeah. one of the things that is just, we all experience is we're, we're in the car and you can yeah. feel everything like as you're back. Except up for Asians. It, <laughs> <laughs> Note to self, cut Note that out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved yeah no, seriously i mean the whole joke about asians not being able to parallel park i often think I, I was i was in a laundromat in vancouver and this asian dude there who owned the laundromat we were talking and he was making all these jokes about how asians can't drive and he's like dude I, i'm allowed to say it i'm asian <laughs> it's true it's i true. wonder if it's so think of asian culture they are not expressive with like command of their environment they're bubble of like people around them, they they arms in, head down, and they navigate without bumping ever, anything mm, around. Mm. So their sense of self that we expand, right, into mm. our technology, into our. Well, I wonder if mechanisms. Japanese backhoe operators are you know just less clumsy. Skilled. Boom, boom. Just I have no idea. <laughs> but like when you put yourself into a car and it's not apologies I, I guess, to natural Asian or whatever listeners. that is like they. I, yeah. I would be interested to see if they actually have that feeling. Maybe this is foreign to them to think that there is this innate ability to yeah. feel beyond yourself and feel as if you are part of the car. The car is a card of you. And you said yeah. it as a prosthetic. I mean, let's face it. There are cultural differences. And of course, there's variation within cultures and not everyone fits the stereotype, etc. So you know, standard disclaimer. <laughs> but there are cultural variations in the way we inhabit our bodies, the way we inhabit space. Mm-hmm. You know, any, you know, African, anyone raised in Africa is going to have a sense of dance that's just better than They'll someone a, raised in a Pennsylvania. perception of color different given their linguistic right. set. Yeah, They sure. can't perceive blues the same way we perceive blues. They can't see it on a huge chart. Hmm. You know, they, you've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. The, the, ling, the language corresponding to the perception uh-huh. of color. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so these things exist, and and so you know, I know we're throwing around. St- I am throwing around stereotypes <laughs> that could be offensive to some <laughs> listeners, but you know, I'm totally happy to say I'm a dorky white dude who can't dance. You know, and yeah. a lot of that is because I'm a fucking white dude. Yeah, uh, yeah. And okay, Mick Jagger can dance, but. He, he studied. But these are just observations of a human thing. We're yeah. just randomly as talking, observing yeah. like, oh, that's natural for us. Right. You know, it might not be natural for everybody. But the, I mean, that's the feeling that I, I, I imagine when I watch these guys, because mm-hmm. I do feel that in a car or in my van, for example, I do yeah. feel like there 
after a while you get this sense of how is there oh wait that engine there's something a little different about the 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 engine right right now or you know the way that Uh turns i might i might need to check the air pressure in that left front tire because in that left turn i felt something there you know it it, you do start to inhabit the machine as if it were your body and you don't in those note in those times notice that you're not feeling your aches you're not feeling those Mm, those types of sensations so then let's parallel this with like a float tank where the the environment completely uh like invokes this sense of no boundaries right so the 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 temperature of the water is the same as your skin everything is isolated then you you don't have a like uh like gps location of where your sense of self is it's completely opaque that's what happens in our technology although the machinery the float tank is sort of the opposite of what i'm what i think we're talking about where we extend ourselves into machines because when you're driving the car you're distracted from your aches and pains, let's say, by the experience of, of controlling the machine, which, by the Extending way... Extending your... Like, I mean, I focus in on the dissolution of boundaries is what I mean. Okay, between so like, you and the machine. Yes, instead. Right, so right. what it does is, like, in an external sense, our, our technology gives us enough confidence that our, our sense of self can can reliably sustain our external projection into this object mm. whereas the float tank goes there's no boundary of your body there's mm. no aches you're, and so that's an inward journey right. or an inward projection without boundary instead of an outward one right interesting point inward projection that's an interesting concept reminds me of this insight i had at some point i must have been high it's one of those high insights <laughs> where I said, okay, dimension. So you start with a point. I was thinking about the uh, the Big Bang, the origins of the universe mm-hmm. and all that. Like you do when you're As high. one does, <laughs> yeah. And so it starts at a point of, you know, in, incredible mass and concentration and all that. And then, so what is the next step from a point? You say, well, it's a line out from that point. So now you have a line and what's the next so that's one dimension right let's say left to right here and then the next thing would be perpendicular to that line so now you go up so now you have the a axis and the xy the ab axis and the xy axis so now you have a plane and then the next projection from that would be coming straight out so now you have three dimensional you have a cube or let's say a sphere um so you have three-dimensional space and if you if you have a sphere what is so each step is perpendicular to the previous step is what i'm saying right so what is the next step now that you have a sphere what is perpendicular to all points on that sphere the point at the center of the sphere yeah so it circles around Uh yeah and you have expansion and the but um I don't know why the fuck I'm saying that. That was no, but re- when the high really kicks in, when you have that, you know that you do that. That's a point of being high. What really fucks with you is then like you're the projector. Your ability to step outside and see all of those layers upon layers. It's like where is that? Yeah, then where are you in that? Yeah, in it's that the, world. It's like the Eckhart Tolle be the witnesser of your thoughts, stepping back. Yeah, 
Yeah. So this this bonding, this which appears to be a human thing. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. I was I was going to compare it to riding a motorcycle, yeah. and also uh, mention the fact that in Europe, almost all the cars are standard shift, and in the U.S., almost all the cars are. It's really hard to buy a car with standard yeah. shift. They're all automatic, and I. I don't like driving automatic cars because it takes me out of that experience of yeah. being integrated into the machine. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather, you know, hit that clutch and shift the gears, even though it's a pain. You know, it it feels like a hassle, but it's not a hassle because it in, it makes me present in the machine. I get bored driving yeah. automatic cars. So you've traveled through India. You lived in India. Look yeah. at so so a lot of people. Same thing like I saw in Ghana and Africa and such. Like when when you look at those like time lapses of no the intersections with no lights and right. they just flow. Right. Look at that. Like, do our blood capillaries, you know, hit each other? No, right. they all have that sense of self, and it just flows together. But then you have the automatic, which leads to full autonomy. It's just like, oh, we don't want the humans in control of these things because they're easily distracted. So it's like, ah, oh, they're not going to shift because then they don't know to like, ah, oh, they they miss the gear and then now they're flying in neutral and blah 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 it's just like no we got to eliminate the control for safety right and i'm not sure what's safer or not but i know that in our current culture when they see the videos it's just like oh it's fucking chaos look yeah. at those streets it's yeah. just, they're all gonna run it how does that work well it's like how does blood cells work you know right. like, that sense of self creates those boundaries to where you can have flow you need you need to surrender to something when you're driving or trying to cross a street in yeah. one of those yeah. countries um yeah. yeah i was in i remember being in vietnam with casilda and in uh ho chi minh city in the south and there was it was like a 10 lane highway or something and it came into a roundabout and we had to cross it and as you say there's no red light and even when there are red lights whatever yeah (laughs) so the only way you get across that street is to just take a step and keep walking project that confidence just it's confidence right and she couldn't do it the only way she could do is to close her eyes and hold my hand so she would close her eyes hold my hand and i would just be like here we go and just walk right into traffic and it flows around you and if you panic and you do something unpredictable Mm -hmm. you're dead but as long as you as you say it's all confidence like i am going to walk from here to there i'm going to walk at the same speed deal with it and they do oh that's a it's like walking on hot coals or something Uh that's an equivalent Uh kind of experience anybody can try this like any next time you're in a crowded street and you want to make sure that the 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 crowd parts in front of you look off into the distance find whatever memory invokes the most confidence in you and then walk with that confidence just in front of you and people in a non-defiant non-aggressive they will just part and it's they're just feeling as they're navigating they're feeling that Mm -hmm. sense of presence you're not you're not saying in traffic of cars yes in in traffic you walk in the middle of the street yeah no good advice you're gonna get me sued yeah what happened to your podcast chris well these kids were listening 
man. <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. No, yeah, but in uh well but also, let's face it, you and I are larger than average white dudes. Yeah. We walk through a crowded room, people tend to make space. <laughs> right, we're gonna have a five foot two going, Fuck you guys, yeah, that yeah. didn't work. <laughs> didn't I work got hit in me. the head. <laughs> I'm in jail now. Yeah. So basically don't listen to anything we say on this no, podcast. No. But I do I I felt that sense of integrating with a machine really deeply on my motorcycle. And that's one of the things I loved about having a motorcycle, how it was just the right amount of fear and um uh busyness, like things that needed to be done. Both hands, both feet, you're scanning the road constantly you're you know monitoring your balance and you're yeah. you're going into a turn or you're a little too fast a little too the way that that is just the right amount of everything to liberate that sort of meditative yeah. free Total flowing flow state, flow state in yeah. your in, in imagination yeah. and i would i do these long rides and i'd have these long elaborate fantasies that I was just observing. I had no, it was like a dream while I was awake. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I, I loved having that motorcycle. That was great. It's interesting how you have to. Okay, so this leads to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is your relationship with technology and your understanding of how humans and technology interact. And so you were. Um, I don't know what you call yourself a futurist is there, right? other people have said they've called yeah, you yeah. that okay because you I've been had working, a podcast you met yeah, Joe techno and optimist yeah I was techno optimist it was okay. at this conference that just like converged with like as we were talking so many of these people that we knew went to this global futures 2045 conference I remember when Duncan went I yeah. think he invited me and I was like what are you talking about it was was put, put on by Dmitry Ishkov that's the Russian right. billionaire mogul that's in his 2045 right. for the human avatar to lead us to the synchronicity right and so he got the greatest minds together for this huge conference with like Kurzweil and such and um yeah that joe and duncan were doing their uh joe rogan question everything where they did this episode and duncan and i were up in the media room and uh we were chatting about like technology and it's like well this is you know this is going on all these crazy you know like high thoughts at the time and the producers is like hey can we get you guys on man on the street and we went out there and next thing you know you know there's there and i mean this was a huge converging of minds of yeah did you make the show did that interview you know they went with the techno dystopian so they called it like the robo apocalypse and so i talked uh, about how like technology is this technological safety net that is that is like i'm looking at like earth from a macroscopic sense as in like there's been four point two billion years of this rock and then for the past however many billion there's been life forms and then there's all these fucking mountains in space that come and hit us and then exterminate everything and so like life itself is trying to preserve itself and so here come some monkeys with thumbs that they're like all right so there's enough i guess intelligence in this that we could like synthesize the genome put it on you know external devices put it up into satellites you know send a rover to mars that is carrying back you know bacteria on it now it's like life is preserving life yes at the cost of other life but like life in the macroscopic sense seems to be using monkeys with thumbs to preserve itself 
So you're looking at life as an entity, as a thing that expresses itself through different organisms. Yeah. And it's like, it's just, it's utilizing intelligence in a way or the ability to conserve complexity in a way, complexity being this DNA structure that is vulnerable to the external world itself. Mm. You know, like the sun's going to go supernova, blah, blah, all of these things that through our observations or through our symbiotic relation with technology has allowed us to observe about ourselves. And like, this brings me back to like my loss of religion, my loss of like feeling that I was broken because I didn't, I had a broken receiver to feeling broken as myself. Then it's like, what does that strip you down? It strips you to just like, well, what the fuck am I? Well, through our observations, it's like, well, I'm a bundle of cells. That's fucking crazy. What's that mean? What's a cell? What the fuck does it mean? Like, oh, it goes down to like this DNA code. And then that takes me back into like, holy shit like this is a like systems understanding of like it's a it's a genetic code it's a code that goes back billions of years and it has all of these mutations in it that led to where i sit now there's one code that goes all the way back so what is that code doing if it's that programming you know life to you know conserve complexity where is that headed well to me it's like what has it done in the last just hundred years it is like like, you know, like it's made these phallic objects and then, you know, blasted itself up into, you know, the, the space above our heads. But would you say, based upon your observation of life, that it is, in fact, conserving complexity? It seems to me that we're destroying complexity in we, a way yeah. in, in our microbiomes, in the outer natural world. We're destroying our most complex ecosystems and the oceans and the jungles. The act of observation. Uh, Somebody turned on the water, I guess. Oh, Um, I guess, well, the act of observation can be destructive in itself. And we see this on like electron microscopes. When you go into it, it damages it. Yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. The the coral reefs aren't destroyed because we're observing them. No, but the act of using primates with thumb to fulfill the objective of, you know, conserving complexity, it only has a small time between, you know, under our feet is one of the largest caldera volcanoes on earth that is like 130,000 years past due for eruption that like annihilates most of life on this continent. You know, we have many external things that happen to life itself. Is that, that cooked into the price of real estate around here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry to interrupt you with no. that triviality, but I, that's actually what I just thought of. Like, oh, yeah. don't like, buy land in Montana. I think it was Joe that talked about us being the mold on the bread, but mold is just another form of life. And right. what is life doing in the macroscopic sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, the, the presumption there is that life is a thing that we can talk about separate from the organisms. And that's what I so like electricity. When I lost my sense of like the, the, the God and all that, I yeah. could only come to first principles. First principles is I am life. There's no like from a microbiome, from a cellular, from every way in which I look at even the, the neurons that are metabolizing the, you know, synaptic cleft that allows us to have this communication. It's all life. So, I can then use that simulation we talk about of projecting mm. uh, Stephen Johnson's adjacent possible in our shadow future. That's another thing that we have that allows us to observe 
reality in a different way. Mm. And I was like, well, what is it doing? In the macroscopic sense, life as mold is, as trees are, as all of these different life forms are, it's the same fucking code. What is that code doing? What is the, when you command function execute, what is the execution leading towards? And it seemed to me it is preserving life absolutely at the cost of other life, but it is preserving life. Huh. Yeah. I, I have trouble. I, I'm still stuck on that conclusion that it is preserving life because all available evidence shows me that it is destroying life. Unless you say the fact that we have sent a possibly contaminated life rover to Mars. Apoptosis. Apoptosis, the, the the inward programming of cell death. Yeah. Right. But that's not what's happening. It's It's... Speaking of which, your book, so this was my perspective during the 2012 conference, right? right? Oh, that's right. I'm arguing against your former self (laughs) here. This is what I was talking to Duncan about, (laughs) you know, at this conference. It's been, and then for years now, they they introduced me to like your podcast, you know, like Uh, it was through the shrimp parades or whatnot. And it's like, so I had this thesis, this thesis that was built upon my core of authenticity of who I am, what I am, literally what I am. And what am I made of, which is life. So I project or I have the ability to project outward of myself. And what am I doing? I'm trying to conserve complexity, which is innate. Like, well, we're fucking up the climate. It's fucking crazy that primates with thumb can control the climate of a planet. This is pretty fucking amazing to think about. We're doing it in a very irresponsible way. That's going to get us to, you know, we're going to be voted off the island here pretty soon. You know, like it's, it's, it's anyways. So like you're talking about like, the, the whole civilized de- death, I, you know, the thing that you've been building over these years has pulled me. I've had so many like mock arguments with you in my head <laughs> of this. And now I sit with you and I'm like, I not only think that that's like uh, enabling our ability to, it's just like, oh no, life is just doing it. That like gives us some confidence that it's okay to continue to use carbon the way that we do. You know, I saw the naivete in that, but that only happened after I had like the daughter and then kept, yeah, I was able to, my dad always said, it's not what people say, it's what people hear. And I, I was not hearing what you said. Mm. And now I have a much better like um, grasp of, I still use those reframing techniques, but I put it in like responsibility of our like day to day existence. Right. We have this ability to control the climate. Holy fuck. We need to do that responsibly. And we have to have conversations today that will enable that for tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the worst, the worst thing about this is that I am a hundred percent certain that I was more intelligent in your head than I am in real life. <laughs> my avatar yeah, was yeah. definitely smarter. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. I'm smarter in my own head than I am in real life too. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting for two, two points. One, the, the sort of faith with which you held that position. I think we talked about this the other night there's an echo of the religion you lost, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's like a an urgency to believe this yeah. to be true, yeah. and you've lost it again. Ironically, if I understand correctly, triggered by your participation in creating life. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It, all of those perspectives are observing the code in, in the code base, right? right? It's a, it's a player in the simulation and it's not a, like an active participant. My daughter makes me, I have a stake in reality now, right? The, the, the shadow future that's there is something that I have a responsibility for now. So it's like, I can get all airy fairy and I can get all like confident about like my place as life and what we're doing and how we're uh, conserving complexity and all this. And like, yeah, at the cost of what an apoptosis and all of this sounds all great. But then the reality is we have killed 60% of the species in the last 40 years alone. Right. I'm 36. That means in my lifetime, 60% of the species that I was privy to on this rock. What is that going to be for my daughter? They're already gone. They're yeah. gone. They're gone. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, I'll reframe it. Well, we got Stuart Brand and his de-extinction movement. And because it's DNA code, we're going to bring back the carrier pigeon. We're going to bring back this fucking great that we have that. But did we need to get to this point? Did we need to kill all of these species right. to then be able to bring them back? When has technology saved us in the past? Everyone keeps saying technology is going to save us. But when I look at the history of technology, I don't see how I, I see how it has ameliorated specific problems, most of which were caused by the creation of the conditions needed to create the technological fix. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, we can say, well, our, we've developed an anti-cancer drug that actually uh, helps with certain kinds of lymphoma. But if you look upstream, you see there's a pharmaceutical plant that's pumping shit into the river and has been for the last 60 years that is carcinogenic. Yeah. So I and this is the thesis of civilized to death. I see very few situations in which when you include the, the pharmaceutical plant dumping its shit into the river into your calculation of the benefits of that drug and the costs of buying that drug and the fact mm -hmm. that it's not available to everybody, you know, based on class and, you know, um, nationality and all this other shit. I see very, very few examples where like, well, that's a clear net benefit. And I see these things that are beautiful we can fly. Holy shit. We can fly. The Wright brothers, badass dudes, no doubt about it. But within 10 years of flying, people were dropping bombs out of airplanes. Yeah. Like yeah. where, you know, in your, in the height of your techno optimism, did you see examples of where like, you know, here's a clear cut case of where technology made life better life. Yes. In the, in the abstract or, or, or an individual's of, life in the perspective of conserving complexity, right, what I've heard, right. what I've now heard you say over the years is from the human experience of day to day life. Right. And the human experience, hello train, yeah. <laughs> the human experience has been perverted and been narratized all for this, like agendas of our own or agendas of others. But what if 
if I was to take this perspective or to give a narrative to what life is doing in this macroscopic sense, it is conserving complexity. And it, from that perspective, I think that we can utilize, as Kevin Kelly calls it, the technium, right? This is the seventh kingdom of life. Technology has its own needs, wants, and mm. it's got its own trajectory. Right. And it's, uh, it's, um, the, you know, it's our extended phenotype. He gets into it. And it's like, well, let's just say that we are being compelled like the parasites that compel the ants to go to the top that this blah blah tax toxoplasmosis all that life in the macroscopic sense is compelling the actions of primates with thumbs to conserve complexity now those thumbs allowed us to control the climate so buckminster's fuller spaceship earth we can now control the climate by the way we're not controlling it we're affecting affecting that's but if we were controlling it it would be much better but we cannot control it as humans yeah but if we if we as humans could take the perspective that we are life itself this is taken to the the woo woo we are all god we are all this we're all that no 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 we can all conclude if we use the observations of who we are at our authentic core, we are life. We are a product of life. There's no way of debating outside of the fact that we are life and we arose here on this planet and it seems to have this symbiotic relationship to technology and in the macroscopic sense, it has led to the ability to control the climate, to use the natural elements that are found on this rock Life creates rockets that have the ability to push meteorites. So our rockets... So, so asteroids are less of a chance of, of decimating life on Earth because of primates with thumbs and right. their relationship to technology. Okay, what about volcanoes? Fuck yeah, it's very vulnerable to that. Yeah, we so can't do can shit we, about that. We can put geothermal pumps that go all the way down again this is what life does is it tries to conserve it or to protect complexity to preserve life itself yes at the cost of other life but it knows its vulnerabilities there's a fucking volcano underneath us there's the polar shifts you know the whole entire polar right you know magnetic shift there's solar flares that come in there's the life is vulnerable right. life is very vulnerable but it's persu- per, uh, persuasive it's or pervasive but a lot of uh, let's explore this idea because a lot of the dangers that you're enunciating solar flares for example they're really not dangerous to life. What they're dangerous to is technology. Now, is technology an expression of life? Can you debate it otherwise? Where did it come from? It came from life, but that doesn't mean it is life. A it, turd comes from me. That doesn't mean it is me. The chrysalis of a caterpillar is of the caterpillar, but it gave rise to something that can fly and overcome it, the limitations of its of the earth. Right, but it's made of organic cells. It, you know, it, plastic is not organic. It absolutely is. It comes from fossils. It oh. comes from dead life millions of years old. I guess you're right. Plastic is... What is that, but, George but it, Carlin? But like is it life, organic? Wait a minute. George Carlin yeah. gets into like life had the whole objective just to create styrofoam. Yeah. That's what the the, the the earth is fine. Humans are fucked, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, but I mean, yeah, that's, that's a complicated question because plastic doesn't exist in the universe until we make it, right? As far as we know. We? What? We. Again, we're, we're having to, yeah. you, you yeah. advocate for, but not the human everything that humans create is life. It, 
it came from life. Though. It came from life. Yeah. That doesn't make it life. It does not make it life, but it, it's a product of life. And so what are these products doing to life itself? It seems to be through its observations of itself, sees its vulnerability, yeah. and then can protect it from its vulnerability. So then capitalism is another expression of life. Sure. It could be a bad one. It could be a mutation. Life creates cancers. Life creates all of these ailments for right. life. Right. Yeah. So the, the phrase that I keep stumbling over is the um, conservation of complexity, because what I see is that our life form, human life form, is creating, um, you know, let's say plastics at the expense of biological complexity, um, you know, destroying the oceans and toxins being pumped into rivers and the air and so on. And so I don't see how we are conserving complexity so much. What I see is, in fact, that we're sacrificing complexity, organic biological complexity, which, I mean, I don't know, everything is infinitely complex, but it seems to me that living things are more complex than rocks. But don't but, you see how you putting these perspectives shows our ignorance of the use? We are the people that just stumbled upon x-rays and using them to judge the size of our shoes inside of our feet you know that caused all the cancers we yeah. don't use x-rays in that way anymore and we won't use plastics in that way anymore because plastics are an incredible thing for antimicrobial we need it in our hospitals plastics are an incredible invention it's a credible use of technology or observation of the world to use right. natural you, elements. you say we won't but it, the same argument can be made of antibiotics. They're incredibly yeah. important, incredibly useful. And someone 30 years ago could have said and probably would have said, we're not going to waste them the way we are right now. We're yeah. going to see what we're doing to ourselves. Yeah. But I don't see evidence that we ever fucking see what we're doing to ourselves and no. stop it. No. We still have, you know, enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world. So many. It's like. I don't see the evidence for us learning as a species. And you've given me the horizon of the cliff this is why i can't advocate it the same way i'm only doing it now because i have the opportunity <laughs> over five years but i had a daughter yeah and my daughter makes it holy shit into the day-to-day -day. i'm not just life i'm a fucking father yeah and this is a little creature this is a little human that has to live on this rock right and i She's can't not let life. this rock She's you Sophia. know that she can't she can't like have any ex experience with with food without ingesting microplastics at this point right like there is just her environment is not allowing her to have a healthy life right a healthy life she is life of course cool yeah i can pontificate about this i can articulate right. express the macroscopic universe and how life is preserving itself and cool no monkeys are killing the fucking earth right, right. now right yeah yeah, that's the tragedy I see as well. And, you know, going back to, to what we were saying about extending ourselves into the backhoe or the mm -hmm. motorcycle or whatever, do you feel that is the trajectory of of life the merging of biology and technology? I hope. I hope because I know when I felt that, when I felt that authenticity to, oh, I'm life, 
and I can extend myself into technology, I have this like grand vision that if everybody held the perspective that they were light, they were life itself, they would extend themselves into this biosphere, into the seventh kingdom of life and see that, holy shit, we have to intelligently like live on this earth, use all the technological innovations, all of this, this conservation of complexity, all of this. And like, because we are all life right now, we are so, so myopic and I am Mormon or I am Catholic or I am this, I am this fuck. You are your life. Like get to your core. What are you like? Go extract some of your own DNA. Look at your code. You can do it. Send it to 23. It doesn't don't fucking matter. You have the ability to go to be, to, to feel the incorporeal Christ, right? To be the doubting Thomas, to see exactly what you are at your core, which is life. And if we can take that perspective, if we can project that into the, the macroscopic, hopefully that will change our adjacent possible. And my daughter won't have to live in a world where the environment is now toxic. Like, like mother earth has her fever. This is how I explained to her what's happening mm. in climate change. She can't understand this, but she can understand when she gets sick, right. that she is life and she's experiencing a fever and it sucks. And it's like you, you sneeze and you cough and you vomit. And like, we're, we're up here and weather has never been like this before. I mean, just crazy freak hailstorms and all of these things. And you know, the other day she comes out and like, like, Oh, mother earth is crying. And mm. it's like, yeah, she's sick she's sick right now but we just as you love when i come and comfort you and cuddle you when you're sick we need to have that same empathy for mother earth like she's here that's our responsibility that's our opportunity that's how i try to reframe it it's not just our responsibility it's an opportunity that is beautiful and i don't want to change the framing but as you were talking i was thinking as opposed to this like you know your sort of um uh clarion call to feel yourself as life and there thereby extend yourself into technology in a in a healthy way and use this technology to comfort mother earth and so on which is fucking great if we can do that the way i tend to look at it is that technology is extending itself into us yeah that we are parasitized by the technology you referred to earlier, the toxoplasmosis and the, the you know, the beetle that goes to the top of the grass so it'll get eaten by the, the cow or whatever the fuck it is. And um, I feel like technology is extending its cold fingers into us in our cell phones and our everything all, you know, in the apps and the this and the that. And, and, it's draining us of our life force true and that's why it doesn't matter that the environment gets destroyed because the techno mammals of the future don't need air they they're powered by the sun Mm -hmm. they don't need clean water because all they need is some oil for their gears to run and their you know whatever their mechanics to work so there's some sort of sinister logic in the fact that the natural world is dying at the moment that we're becoming fused with machines that don't no longer need that natural world yeah 
and this is why it's uh, why it's brought me back to reality and not using the like Terrence calls it you know if you were if you were just to walk and turn a turn a corner and see a birth in process and totally not know what is happening. That is not a beautiful experience, you know, call somebody, you know, there's blood, there's screaming, there's all of that. And, you know, he's like, this is, we're giving birth to what is it like now? Is it artificial intelligence? Is it this? I tend to go, you know, or like for me, that's helped me project authenticity and a hope for a better tomorrow is through that technology is in a symbiotic relationship with us if we use it responsibly if we don't use it responsibly we're getting kicked off the island and maybe something else comes and use the potential of technology to help conserve complexity to help the vulnerability that life has as existing on the third rock from a mediocre class g star it has the opportunity to conserve itself to replicate itself indefinitely or as at least as long as feasibly in the universal time scale as possible this dna code will continue to execute over a long enough time like monkeys are just an opportunity for it along its path to conserve itself yeah using technology responsibly is harder than it sounds because we have this this belief that technology is neutral and all you have to do is bring good intentions Mm -hmm. and i think that's so naive it gives us the power of gods without the wisdom Without, Eric, well, Eric Weinstein just said that. Yeah, it gives us some godlike powers, but it it also I think it's necessary to understand that technology is designed by people with intentions, yeah. and their number one intention is to get you to buy more technology, use more technology, become more dependent. You know, and you know this guy who was the Google ethicist. Um, he's been on Joe Rogan's show and other. Pro- oh, yeah. He was on Tim Ferriss's show, I think. What's Forget his name. Um, but he's he talks about how apps are designed by thousands of engineers who are trying to get you to just keep using that app yeah. a little longer. But I okay, so this goes back to I think where we have a little uh, that's technology of today. That's not technology in the 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 essentially what technology is, which right. is an extension all the way to where we picked up the stick and we had the ability to abstract that is not just a stick, but an extension of our arm that reached for the apple. Sure. Apples are scarce until you can extend yourself into reaching the apples that are above your head. And then you reach, put a stone on the end of the stick and it's and an axe and you cut so, down the apple tree and now there are no so fucking apples. Kurtzweil, <laughs> right, right? So this is where Kurtzweil says that the, the first singularity was uh was pre like we cannot imagine a world so the the that's what singularity is the inability to calculate or you know upon the event horizon so we can't go back in history and find a time where there was not technology in our history technology is defined as the ability to abstract the world and utilize it to manipulate the world well and homo habilis habilis i don't know how to pronounce that i guess would be the first my understanding, I may be wrong, but I think that's the first proto-human that used tools. Mm-hmm. And that was before we were Homo sapien, yeah. you know, modern, anatomically modern. So he's right in that sense that there is no time in human, quotes, history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I guess language is technology. Exactly. Right. That's I was going to earlier and say like, like, yeah, we go back to the anthropology or we go to these tribes and they don't have cell phones, but they have language and language itself is, is an abstraction of the world. It's the world internalized for you to have like that simulacra as that old book, you know, like this is our internal simulation that we render to then navigate the world. So the world of that, trucker that picked you up was rendered in a resolution that allowed him to see a dangerous object on your body. You do not have that same simulacra. You have not abstracted the world in that fine resolution that Mm. allowed you to see that. So it's, it's magic to you. It's, you know, it's outside your ability to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. And fire certainly, you know, yeah. Fire. Yeah. I think about that a lot. I, you know, in civilized to death, I, I form this argument that it's agricultural society. It's it's civilization that has distorted our human behavior and made us sort of directed us down the road that led to where we are now of disaster. Um, But I have to admit that there are signs of this same kind of, um, uh, what's the word the, the, a, a, a not caring about the costs um, when you look at like Buffalo uh, there's a place near here um, somebody was talking earlier about a Buffalo fall oh the yeah the cliff fall yeah it's yeah. not a fall it's where they were driven over yeah, the cliff exactly. by native people who set up fires or you know, something that would scare the buffalo into a more and more concentrated yeah. flow over a cliff. Yeah. Thousands of buffalo, tons, tens, millions of tons of buffalo meat. Their the, simulation only allowed them to see meat. Yeah, to see, I guess. To see a future in which they were not starving. That was the limits of, and they weren't, and there's no future where, like, oh, we're eating one one millionth of this of the animal mass we just killed here. Satellites looking down to see how fucking small the pale blue dot is. Yeah, all they saw was starvation. But what about these these like native speeches where like you can't eat money and you know you're polluting the air and you when you cut down the last tree you'll see. I see it as like, and this is where I love that you have framed civilization in the way that you have because when I look at life in the macroscopic sense i see capitalism i see civilization as the cancer that is that objective is to replicate itself or to conserve itself at the cost of the 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 whole the system whole cancer is just the just the same code replicating itself like we have that that what's that woman who her cancer is still replicating the day she died in the 40s oh right the 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 the, the rebecca snoot or somebody that so, yeah the, so like who wrote that book Kurtzweil yeah, the, talks about the singularity immortality right. people talk about uploading well this this in the cellular level the dna that created the life form that created this cancer is still living today that we're making observations on yeah well capitalism has given us great observations on that we can control the climate affect the climate it's now our responsibility to control it to to preserve as much life as possible and if we're preserving sorry to interrupt you but i was going to say if we're preserving life if that returning to your central point about how what we're we're, our purpose our, our sort of central purpose is to preserve the complexity of life and when i say our i mean participants in life i guess 
then the best way to do that is to go back to a an informed hunter-gatherer approach because that is the most uh, long-lasting, stable system that there is for humans to interact with the planet. That's the wisdom that we need. Yeah. That's what we've, we don't have in our perspective, in our simulation right now, is the wisdom of how best to utilize our ability to affect the climate, to affect our place as mold on a rock. Yeah, not just climate, our happiness, our satisfaction, our health, yeah. or, you know. And if we can yeah. all step back, dissolve our boundaries, which is a human ability we all have, is to dissolve that personal boundary of self and say, you're not, you know, a white guy or you're not a Catholic or you're not a Mormon or all. no, we're all life. And it is, it is our responsibility. It's our opportunity to ask ourselves why tomorrow is not going to be better today because our actions today is not going to allow us a tomorrow. And that's the reality that my daughter has given me is that her tomorrow doesn't have the species, 60% of the species that I took for granted that I only had the encyclopedia to know about. Now we have the internet and she has a catalog. She asked Siri and she can just query into the cloud and Siri will come back with extinct animals that I didn't even know existed that are now gone. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, man. Chris, it's five <laughs> years in the making. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is fun. This is, I, I love this driving around in the van, meeting people that I don't know, but I already like. It's fantastic. Yeah. It never disappoints. It's amazing. It's Thanks amazing. A no, lot. Let's get the last bit. Yeah. Was, yeah. Uh, you were, we were making the observation of the effect you have, right? You're very humble about it, but, but we all have this natural, this this very embracing energy for the narratives around the campfire and you're using technology and you're broadcasting a fire that as cliche as it is, has given warmth to me, my family. And now you're here and you're enjoying some of the, the warmth that you've created with this mm. digital fire. Fuck. That's great. Thank you, man. It is. Love you, Chris. You're welcome by this fire. Anytime. <laughs> is there a website where people can learn more about you and just, your work or anything? Uh, right now, just medium, just Kevin Russell on medium, Kevin Russell on well, medium. I guess it's techno optimist, but I've, I've prefaced that enough to not take it as naive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Two S's, two L's. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kevin Russell. Beautiful dude. Very thoughtful. He also appeared on um, Anya Katz's podcast. Uh, I think she posted a few weeks ago. So if you'd like to hear more of Kevin, get to know him a little better and hear him in conversation with a woman and sorts of things that uh, I wouldn't have thought to ask him, you can check out her podcast. It's called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. All right. Last reminder, sunbasket.com forward slash TS. I know I mentioned that a couple hours ago, but I just want to remind you again, you're about to go back into the real world now. And uh, I mean, it's a no brainer. Uh, it ends up with these half off the first two orders. You're paying five bucks per portion five bucks that's i think about what a big mac costs and here we're talking about really nice sophisticated food um i you know i bought it from my mom i've got her on the program and she's digging it 
And uh, it's a great thing for somebody who, you know, is living alone or maybe a couple. And, um, you know, if your parents are are in a situation where, you know, cooking's a, a hassle, getting going to the store is kind of a hassle. This is a really reasonable, easy way to solve that problem. And, uh, yeah, pretty cheap, too. Cheap generosity. There's nothing like it consider it sunbasket.com forward slash ts to get half off your first two orders all right speaking of mom here she is with some of the stuff that we've got in the garage uh also don't forget that tangentially reading book i I think she mentions it here but i always forget to mention it we've got um, a couple boxes of those the full color version so if you're in the united states you can get that tangentially reading book order it right on my website and we'll send it to you if you're outside of the u.s better to order it through amazon all right thanks everybody catch you soon okay mom uh, tell people what they can order from the garage okay in our cottage garage we have lots and lots of t-shirts sex at dawn civilized to death vanthropology tangentially speaking paleo modern and Talking out of my ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. They're all civilized to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you want to be free, say what you want to feel.
spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground 